the darkness, beyond the realm of normalcy, there are mysteries waiting to be uncovered. Mysteries that suggest that there is more lurking in the darkness than we may think. There are secrets waiting to be heard. Secrets that are only whispered during the night tide. When it comes to modern storytelling, it's quite the overused trope, the who-did-it-to-me mystery, where the departed influences an investigation in order to reveal the details of their murder, bringing to justice the unsuspected killer. However, when it comes to folklore and legends, Involving ghost stories, it's a theme which appears time and time again. A theme which is essentially as old as time. When it comes to such stories, it's almost unavoidable. It seems that often justice is the only thing that will finally allow the dead to be at rest. It's a scenario that spans continents and cultures. The first known ghost stories involving spirits seeking justice comes to us from ancient Mesopotamia. It was believed that after death, spirits would travel to the great beyond a darkened realm from which there was no return. For the Mesopotamians, death was final, and from it, there was no escape. The realm of the dead was ruled by Rishkigal, known as the Dark Goddess or the Dark Queen. She ruled over the dead and was known to the living as the Lady of the great place. Now, in this instance, the word great isn't referring to anything desirable, as many think of the afterlife today. Instead, it is referring to the immensity of the place, meaning that it's endless, a darkened place so boundless, it is beyond comprehension. The Dark Queen ruled over the realm of the dead, and her disembodied subjects were forbidden from leaving. However, though the realm was dismal and often uncomfortable for the souls that resided there, Erishkigal wasn't without compassion. There were certain circumstances when spirits were permitted to leave and once again make contact with the realm of the living. It was only allowed when a spirit had unfinished business on the earth, when a wrong needed righting. There were two instances in which this was permissible. 
when the proper funerary rites had not been performed, and when the spirit's life had been prematurely cut short due to the misdeeds of another. In this case, they were allowed to roam the earth as ghosts, punishing those who had wronged them. Often, the punishment would come in the form of sickness as the spirit attached themselves to the person. For the Mesopotamians, sickness and ill health wasn't caused by germs or the body itself. It was brought on by the sins you had committed. In essence, sickness wasn't a random, unfortunate event. Sickness was deserved. Those who had met an early end due to the actions of another, the sickness these spirits caused would be more profound. It could take the form of lesions, tumors deforming the person's appearance, seizures, or any form of debilitating illness. Having maladies such as these made you a very suspicious figure to the general population. If you had a loved one or acquaintance suddenly die, and then you became sick any time afterwards, suspicion of your involvement in their death began to arise. Illness any time after a death was often seen as proof of guilt. These spirits would remain restlessly wandering the earth at night and inflicting illness until either their killer was brought to justice or they joined the world of the dead themselves. The ancient Egyptians had similar ghostly wanderers as well. While their view of the afterlife was slightly more upbeat, like the Mesopotamians, their slighted departed could roam the earth as well in search of vengeance. For the ancient Egyptians, they came to believe that the soul was made up of several different elements or parts. And when a person died, those elements split apart and would go off on their separate journeys into the afterlife. But the two parts that made up the person's personality, their consciousness, would merge together and form an entity that we would refer to today as a ghost. For the most part, ghosts were positive. They were seen as positive things to have hanging around. These spirits would protect their families and descendants, and they were known to bring about good fortune. However, there was a slightly darker side to them as well. If the spirit's end had been caused 
by the hands of another. They would haunt and torment the living until justice could be served. The only way the living could rid themselves of the torment was to beg the spirit for forgiveness. If this was something the spirit was unwilling to offer, intervention would be required. If the spirit was unwilling to relent and the living had done all they could in order to appease and obtain forgiveness, the next step was to call in a priest who would act as a mediator. If the spiritual dispute could not be resolved, then a judge would be summoned and a supernatural court would be called into session. The living would be put on trial for the misdeeds committed against the dead. And if found guilty, they would serve out some sort of punishment for the crime. This act of bringing justice and payment for the crime would put the ghost at rest and it would leave this world in order to join the afterlife. These themes are rather universal in nature and pop up time and time again. It seems as if every culture has some sort of story of the dead, angered by a life stolen, haunt or torment the living in order to find justice and peace. While throughout history, belief systems have come and gone, religions abandoned to mythology, the theme of spirits needing peace and justice for the misdeeds brought about on them still remain a constant in religious stories and in folklore. Every place has stories of such spirits, those seeking to torment their tormentor. It's a common bit of folklore, one that draws us in. They often have all the markings of a good story, love, betrayal, and of course, ghosts. It was the most impressive feature of the old house, a lovely lilac bush filled with puffs of lovely sweet-smelling flowers. It was situated just outside the bedroom window and was the wife's pride and joy. For decades, she had lovingly tended to it and watched with pride as it grew and blossomed. It could be said that this flower bush was perhaps her only joy, and tending to it her refuge, a brief retreat from the abuse she endured daily. Whether it represented hope or 
gave her a small reminder that beauty in life was still possible. The woman dedicated herself to her gardening endeavors. Autumn was always the hardest season for her, as it meant that colder days were ahead and for far too many months, there would no longer be the hours of escape the garden offered her. Autumn meant the end of her only refuge and signaled the impending imprisonment that winter brought about. The enduring darkness and the pain that always came with it. Everyone in the area knew what went on behind closed doors in the neatly kept house. While the outside may have put on a cheerful and welcoming facade, the neighbors were all too well aware of the suffering that went on within. The night air was often filled with the sounds of angry shouting, desperate, pitiful pleas, painful cries, and then that unsettling silence. The one that momentarily tore at you and made you wonder. Eventually, though, it became so commonplace that the neighbors paid it no more heed than they did the sound of crickets chirping about in the early autumn night. And once again, she was silenced. An invisible woman whose presence was perhaps only appreciated by that plant that she so lovingly tended to. It wasn't until the fighting stopped one winter that people started to remember the woman as if the newfound silence suddenly made her visible. Whenever well-meaning neighbors stopped by with one excuse or another for their well visit, the old man would cheerfully invite them in. The inside always seemed a bit disheveled and the wife was always unaccounted for. When asked about her, he would tell them that she had went out of town to care for a sick relative, one whose identity always seemed to change depending on who was visiting. For the next door neighbors, it was her mother. And for the family down the road, it was her sister. It was becoming clear to all that the wife's absence had come about due to a far more sinister happening. When the spring arrived, and the grounds began to warm and soften. Neighbors were troubled by yet another happening at the little white house. They watched as the old man dug up 
his wife's cherished lilac bush and unceremoniously pulled it from the ground. Then they watched as he began digging a large, deep hole where it had once stood. When the next-door neighbor asked him what he was up to, the old man told him that one of the pipes had burst and he was digging the hole in attempts to fix it. When asked what he was going to do with the lilac bush, he just smiled and told them not to worry, that she would be in the ground where she belonged soon. The next morning, the neighbors were startled to see that, indeed, the lilac bush was again back in the ground where it belonged. But it didn't seem to have fared well with the replanting. It seemed off-collar. Quite a few of the branches had been broken off, and it was hard not to notice how weathered and twisted they now looked. It was a shame to see the once lovely flower bush, which had for so many years been so lovingly tended to, in such a sad state. It was at that moment that everyone knew, with a hundred percent certainty, that the wife was dead. And it was quite obvious that it was not of natural causes. Months passed, and as spring gave to summer, everyone in the neighborhood had become well aware of the changes in their older neighbor. He would throw lavish parties that went on well into the night, and even had a new lady friend move in. The woman was much younger than him and had initiated the relationship, thinking he must be wealthy, dear to the parties he would throw. And while the house was nice, she absolutely hated the bedroom. More specifically, the bedroom window. The old lilac bush had become overgrown due to neglect and had now covered most of the window. It was odd the way the branches went over the glass, and it reminded her of a barred prison window. The bush also had a habit of swaying about when hit with even the slightest breeze, and as it swayed, its twisted branches scraped almost clawed against the glass, like it was trying to claw its way in. It was especially unsettling at night. One evening, the old man was throwing one of his lavish parties, and the young woman began mingling with some of the guests on the porch. There were three men there, roughly her own age, and they soon began chatting it up. Somehow or another, the conversation turned to the overgrown lilac bush, which no longer flowered, 
and its gnarled features. As they sat talking about the bush and how strange and ugly they found it, they were startled when the branches began to sway and pound at the glass. The summer night's air was perfectly still, not the slightest breeze, yet the branches swayed wildly, beating on the glass. As they watched it, one of the men mentioned how, in the moonlight, the bush kind of looked like a large hand with twisted fingers. Just as he said that, the branches swayed, making it look like the hand shape was giving a beckoning motion with its fingers. Curious, the three men made their way into the house and snuck over to the bedroom. The woman stayed on the porch, transfixed by the swaying branches. After what felt like only a few moments, the woman was startled when the men bolted out of the house, each looking pale-faced and rather distraught. One of the men frantically shouted at the woman, wanting to know where the garden shed was. But she pointed in its direction and watched in shock as they raced over to it and broke inside. Within a few minutes, one of the men came out wielding a shovel and immediately started frantically digging up the bush. The woman ran over and yelled at them to stop, all the while demanding to know what was going on. To her dismay, her screams seemed to fall upon deaf ears, and the man kept on digging. He dug and dug, as if in a trance-like state, until finally he and the others were able to pull the bush out of the ground. Afterwards, they stopped, staring down motionless at the hole. When the woman walked up, looked down, she let out a shrill scream. There, sticking out of the earth, was a skeletal hand. When the old man heard the scream, he ran out from the front of the house. When he saw the others staring at the spot where the bush had once been, he knew exactly what they were looking at. Panicked, he ran out into the backyard, and as he ran, he tripped over something and fell. Pain shot up his body, and as he struggled to move, he noticed that there was someone coming towards him. Thinking it was one of his guests, he shouted for help, but as the figure came closer, the shouts became a frightened scream. It wasn't one of the guests. It was his wife. She walked over to him and stared down, smiling. She then picked something up off the ground and set it down close to his head. 
It was one of the cast iron chairs that went with the patio table. The woman then crouched down beside of him and said, Do you remember this chair? I remember this chair. You killed me with this chair. And I have been waiting such a long time for someone to finally notice and listen to me so I could tell them what you did. While some ghosts patiently await the perfect moment to seek justice, others are more proactive. When Zona Heaster met Edward Shue, she was instantly taken with the mysterious newcomer. He was handsome, outgoing, and hardworking. Edward had been in town only a few months and had already established a thriving blacksmith business and seemed to fit into the small, tight-knit community seamlessly. Edward certainly had a charm about him, and it seemed everyone he encountered fell under his spell, including Zona. However, it certainly was not a one-sided infatuation, as Edward seemed to be quite smitten with Zona as well. Within a few weeks, Edward had decided that Zona was the one, and he began courting her. A month later, they were engaged, and everyone seemed happy for the young couple. Everyone except Zona's mother, Mrs. Mary Jane Heaster. She and Zona were incredibly close, and because of this, Mrs. Heaster was known for being quite protective of her daughter. So, it's probably no surprise that she took an immediate disliking to Edward. There was something about Edward that made Mrs. Heaster uneasy. She couldn't place her finger on it, but there seemed to be something troubling about his demeanor. Mrs. Heaster's brewing distrust of the man made her desperate to prevent the fast approaching wedding. She tried her best to talk Zona out of it. But Zona, blinded by love, would have none of it. Eventually, Mrs. Heaster gave in and soon began helping Zona with the wedding arrangements. During the planning, she began to get to know Edward a little more and couldn't help but to be drawn in by his outgoing personality. Perhaps, she thought, she was just being overprotective and maybe even a bit jealous. 
The next few months flew by, and before anyone knew it, the big day had arrived. It was a lovely, yet simple, wedding held in the small church. Friends, family, and neighbors attended, and it was everything the young couple could have hoped for. After the ceremony, Edward and Zona left for their new home, a lovely two-story log cabin. There, the couple lived a quiet and happy existence together. But it would soon be cut short. After only three months of marriage, tragedy struck. One morning, a neighbor boy checked in to see if Zona had any chores or errands for him to run. Zona often hired the boy to help her around the house. And this is how most mornings went for them. When the boy entered the house, he found Zona collapsed near the bottom of the staircase. Well, at first, he thought she had fainted, but soon realized that it was far more serious. Scared, the boy ran and got his mother. The mother, realizing that Zona may be dead, sent the boy to fetch the doctor and then ran down to the shop to fetch Zona's husband. When the doctor arrived an hour later, he found a very distraught Edward in the upstairs bedroom, cradling his wife's lifeless body. The doctor was a little shocked to learn that Edward had not only carried her up the stairs, but it also dressed Zona's body in her finest Sunday wear, including tying her favorite scarf around her neck. This was such a shock to the doctor because typically it was a woman's job to dress and prep the body for a wake. The other thing that the doctor was taken back by was how protective Edward seemed of the body. He would break out into pained wails every time the doctor tried to touch her body. So much so that the doctor feared for Edward's health. Instead of viewing the whole scenario as being suspicious, the doctor saw it as a sign of how much Edward had loved his wife and how truly distraught he was by her passing. Because of all this, the doctor was unable to properly examine the body. And because of this, he determined that Zona had died from an everlasting faint. What we refer to today as a heart attack. By every account, Edward was consumed by grief and wouldn't let anyone touch his beloved. The funeral preparations were led entirely by him, 
and he tearfully attended to every matter. Denying the heartbroken Mrs. Heaster any say in her daughter's funeral. When the services were held, friends and family were a bit unnerved by how possessive Edward seemed of Zona's body. He always stayed by the casket, hovering by her head, constantly adjusting and fussing with the scarf around her neck. He would become abrasive whenever he felt someone came too close, and he often kept it from happening by breaking out into bouts of wild screaming. Most chalked it up to grief, but Zona's mother was certain there was more to it than that. Mrs. Heaster had a sickening feeling that her daughter's death was anything but natural, and that her husband, Edward, had something to do with it. She decided that Edward's bizarre behavior had nothing to do with grief and everything to do with covering a crime. But she had no proof, and she knew there was no way anyone would listen to her and take her concerns seriously unless she had some sort of proof. When it was time to close the casket and carry it outside to its final resting place, Mrs. Heaster noticed how Zona's head seemed to flop unnaturally to the side right after Edward had backed away to reach for the lid. It was an image that burnt itself into her mind's eye. As she walked up to collect the decorative lace sheet that the coffin had been resting on, Mrs. Heaster was certain Zona had been murdered. A few days after the funeral, Mrs. Heaster was gathering laundry when she came upon the delicate lace sheet. Her heart sank at seeing the item, but she took some comfort in being able to have something that allowed her to feel close to her daughter. She decided to wash the piece first in order to give it special care. As she put the sheet into the water and began scrubbing it, she was startled to see that the water began turning red. She lifted the sheet out in panic and was heartbroken to see that the water had stained it. What on earth could have caused this? Was there something in the washing tub she hadn't noticed? When she went to drain the tub, she was startled to see that the water pouring out of it was clear. She scooped some out with her hands, and sure enough, the water was clean. 
no sign of red. This left Mrs. Heaster feeling very shaken. She had seen the red with her own eyes. And when she went back to check on the lace sheet, it still bore the red stain. Mrs. Heaster tried everything she could think of to try to get the stain out of the precious piece. She boiled it and used every manner of remedy she could think of. But the stain persisted. She couldn't help but to feel like it meant something, as if Zona was trying to tell her something. A few weeks later, Mrs. Heaster's feeling that her daughter was trying to communicate with her was confirmed. One night, while in bed, a strange chill came over her, and Mrs. Heaster watched, motionless, as a bright ball of light came floating towards her. She watched as the ball flickered and then materialized into a woman. When her eyes adjusted to the light, Mrs. Heaster was astonished to see that the woman standing before her was Zona. After a brief moment of silence, Zona began to speak. She told her mother that after the first few weeks of marriage, Edward had become unspeakably cruel. His temper was unpredictable, and he would often lash out in violent fits of rage. On the day of her death, she had cooked a simple vegetable stew for dinner, as there was no meat left in the house. When Edward came home that night and was served the modest dinner, his unpredictable temper exploded. He accused her of hiding the meat and keeping it all for herself. Then he attacked her and in the process broke her neck. To show her mother, Zona turned her head, and as it moved, her head flopped down, her face pointing towards her back. Her death wasn't instant, as many might think, and she lied there in that spot by the staircase until passing away shortly before the neighbor boy had come to check in on her. Zona pleaded with her mother to bring Edward to justice so that he wouldn't be able to hurt anyone again. Zona appeared this way to her mother for the next three nights. Mrs. Heaster, now convinced that Zona was reaching out to her from beyond the grave, decided to take the case to the county prosecutor. She told them of Edward's odd behavior during the funeral 
and of the experiences she'd been having for the past few nights. While the prosecutor felt that the poor woman had been driven mad by grief, he was intrigued by her accounts of Edward's behavior after Zona's death. He agreed that the circumstances surrounding her death were a bit odd. A few days later, on February 22nd, 1897, Zona Schum's body was exhumed and an autopsy was performed. When removing the scarf, which was still around her neck, they were shocked to see bruising, which looked as if she had been grabbed by the neck. As the autopsy progressed, it was discovered that Zona had indeed died from a broken neck, the break occurring between the first and second vertebrae. Edward, who had protested and tried to prevent the autopsy from even happening, was immediately arrested. It's said that while Edward was in jail, awaiting trial, it came to light that Zona was by no means Edward's only wife. He had been married seven times previously, with all but one of those wives meeting an untimely end under questionable circumstances. The trial of Edward Shum began on June 22, 1897. During the trial, the defense's key strategy, surprisingly, involved Mrs. Heaster. You see, they believed that by calling her to the stand and having her recount her ghostly experience, it would make the allegations seem less credible in the eyes of the jury. But unfortunately for the defense, bringing Mrs. Heaster to the stand had the opposite effect. The jury was riveted by her tale. And when they learned that the autopsy findings backed this up, their minds were made. What Edward's legal team neglected to take into account was that the popularity of the spiritualist movement only made people of this community more receptive to such a tale. On July 11, 1897, Edward Shue was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Zona Shue. While Edward Shue is mostly a forgotten name when it comes to history, Zona Shue 
is well known even to this day in her community. Her memory and story lives on as the legend of the Greenbrier Ghost. Both of these tales come from Appalachian folklore, and both of these ghostly tales feature female ghosts. The reason for this is that this area's ghostly folklore is rich with stories like these. Stories of women who suffered and whose suffering went unnoticed. While they were alive, there was a moment in each of their lives when they became invisible, when friends and neighbors turned a blind eye, their lives snuffed out by a supposed loved one who not only viewed such actions as permissible, but also inconsequential. For these women, the only means for justice and the only way to save others from such a fate was to reach out and have a voice from beyond the grave. <laughs> 